So we're going to be in John chapter 11. I do thank your uh, indulgence, if indulgence it be, but there's no other arena that I'm in where I can come together with people like that uh, in, um, in solidarity before the Lord and, and calling out to him. So I do thank you for that. And for letting me participate in your community. So today we're going to conclude our responsible speech series. We've been looking for the last several weeks at our words uh, and particularly what scripture says about our words. If you've missed uh, some of those, we've covered, I think I counted anywhere between 27 and 30 different verses and uh, passages over the last three weeks, and we'll add another one today. Uh, so you can grab those off, off the podcast if, if you're interested. But we've looked at our words, and I've entitled the series Responsible Speech because I believe that this is another area of life where we need to uh, have Jesus exercise dominion, right? So the kingdom of God is, is spreading, and it's spreading over every area of our life, over our thoughts, over our dispositions, over our words, over our finances, over our marriages, over our parenting. Jesus' dominion is extending over everything. Um, so we open ourselves up to what that means, and it opens us up to ways of being more fully human. So, um, in the way that God intended. So I think a lot of times I feel like when I give up a sinful habit or a dark inclination that I'm actually giving something up. When the ironic twist of the kingdom is that by offering up these sinful habits and these dispositions to Jesus, I'm becoming, I'm entering into a fuller and richer way of life. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that's what Jesus meant when he said, I came that you might have life, and you might have it to the full. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. So by allowing Jesus to exercise dominion over our words, we're actually entering into a more full expression of what it means to be human. And as the song we sang this morning, when something about when you, when you change, don't expect the world to applaud, things get different. For Jesus to exercise dominion over our words means that things have to change. But I think one of the things that has to change is our whole framework. By exercising responsible speech, we don't have to, but we are allowed to become more and more of what God has intended us to be. So by obeying Jesus, they're not a series of have-to statements. You have to do this, 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 and this. The rest of it's optional. You are actually allowed by God's grace and empowered by his spirit to become more fully human than you've ever been. So we looked briefly at how we use our words in relation to God. So scripture cares very much how we talk to God in prayer, that we address him with reverence, with humility. We acknowledge that his perspective is absolute, right? God is in heaven and we are on the earth. Our knowledge is limited, his is not. But scripture also attests to how we talk about God. So scripture cares very much that we speak the truth in love, to put it uh, in one of the ways that Jesus did. That when we talk about God to other people, scripture would call us to speaking the truth about God. 
in all of its multifaceted dimensions. So we speak about God in community with each other and with those who don't know him. We're to exercise responsible speech. And we're not perfect. So some tender souls here might think, well, if I don't know everything about God, then I can't say anything about God. And that's not, I think, what what scripture is calling us to. But responsible speech means I take care in how I speak about God. In all of my interactions in a small group Bible study, as I'm talking with my coworkers, I ask, am I representing God truly here? Am I speaking the truth about God? Or am I just sort of ripping off part of a Hallmark card and a Garth Brooks song and mixing it all together and, and here's the Jesus who affirms everything that you ever wanted affirmed? Or am I speaking the truth about God? We also looked at how we use our words in relation to each other. When we talk to one another in community, our words are meant to be edifying. Our words should be measured to be of maximum benefit to the other person. Every single thing I say to you should be measured for how much benefit it is to you. So I'm not, according to scripture, talking to hear myself talk. I'm asking myself the question, does this need to be said? How does this fit the needs of the person that I'm talking to? They should be measured for how much benefit they are to another person. But also how we talk about one another. We looked at several passages that speak to how we talk about one another, that God is not interested in us maligning the character of other people, treating people as though they were things, talking about people who aren't there. And that's one of those, I I call it a white-collar sin because it becomes so socially acceptable, but it reveals a condition of the heart. When I feel the need to talk about a person who's not there, in ways that malign their character, or in ways that misrepresent them, frankly, I'm showing a condition of the heart that is ungodly. So we looked at all those things, how we use our words to and about God, how we use our words to and about one another. And we concluded last week with what I call faithful presence. One of the things I find compelling about Jesus is that he's so present to a moment that he can say exactly what needs to be said at that moment. If you've read the Gospels, there are a lot of words. It's not just Jesus popping down, throwing a couple truisms out there, hopping up on the cross, and then ascending to heaven. Like, wow, that only took 15 minutes to save all of mankind. The Gospels have extended conversations between Jesus and his disciples, between Jesus and outsiders, between Jesus and the bad news bears. Like, there's just all kinds of conversations that take place. And in every one of those cases, what I find compelling is that Jesus is so present to a moment that he can speak exactly the way that the person needs to be spoken to. He can do exactly what the person needs to be done. So there are times when people just desperately need a word of grace, and Jesus offers it. Jesus is endlessly compassionate, and he offers grace to people who need it. Think about the woman who touches the hem of his garment. The crowd is surrounding Jesus. 
She's trying to press her way through. Uh, she has uh, the blood issue. She's actually making everybody around her ceremonially unclean by touching them. But she presses through the crowd just with the simple faith of knowing that if I touch his garment, I'll be made well. And she is. And you know the story. Jesus stops the whole procession. I felt the power go out of me, he said, and he wants somebody to fess up. Not in any kind of, you're in trouble, you're going to get scolded, Jesus is going to write your name on the chalkboard. Uh, for those of you who don't know, chalk is this substance that, uh, some, other, some other time. She's not in trouble, but she needs to attest to her faith. And Jesus' words to her are compassionate. He calls her daughter. Your faith has made you well. So there are words of compassion. Exactly what she needs exactly what she needs to hear. But not all of Jesus' interactions are so positive. Not all of his exchanges are so pleasant. Jesus encounters some Sadducees, and they ask him a question about the resurrection. This is in Mark 12, if you want to look at it at some point. And Jesus responds in a way that we might think is a little bit harsh, a little bit edgy. I don't know, Jesus, you're not going to win crowds. You're not going to really influence people if you keep talking that way. They ask him this ridiculous question about the resurrection, which, by the way, they don't even believe in, but they're trying to make a mockery of Jesus. And Jesus' first response to them is, you're wrong because you don't know Scripture and you don't know God's power. That's pretty audacious. Is that, is that the proper word? That's a pretty powerful thing for him to say. Now, the words are different. But again, Jesus says exactly what these smug religious leaders need to hear. You don't know because you don't know God and you don't know Scripture. It's gutsy. But that's what they need to hear in their attitude of smug superiority. They don't actually need grace. Or the form that grace takes is the proverbial crack upside the head. Because as soon as Jesus starts by saying that, all of a sudden, it's like the haymaker that, like, whoa, what did he just say to us? Didn't you see the badge? <laughs> we're, we're really important people here. So there's this continuum of, on one extreme, there's grace and mercy. On the other extreme, there's confrontation and rebuke. And there's everything in between. And Jesus is so present to a moment that he can fit his words and his actions to those needs. He confronts sin he extends mercy to the desperate, to the needy. He critiques wealthy people. And he has this remarkable way of turning a question around on you so that your clever religiosity is turned on its head. I love when he does that. It's one of my favorite, uh, where somebody comes to him and they've got this really clever religious answer. They're like the person who's been in Sunday school for the last 15 years, and they just really know how to be clever. And Jesus says, oh, is that the question you wanted to ask me? And he turns the whole thing on his head. You think of the rich young ruler who comes to him knowing the commandments, and he just lists them off. The commandment he left out was idolatry. And what does Jesus do? That's exactly what he goes for. He cuts right to the bone on the man's idolatry. And again, He's just so present to a moment that he can do that. To me, Jesus is the apex of responsible speech, the embodiment of how God would have us relate to one another 
with our words and our actions. And if we had all kinds of time, I'd love to explore all of these uh, different encounters that Jesus has. But I've listed several on the insert in your bulletin if you want to go back at some point and look at those. You'll see what I mean. And that is kind of my point in this whole series is I'm throwing out a bunch of different passages with the hope that you'll go back at some point Look at those passages, and then as you read the Bible, you say, boy, this is something that's pretty consistent across the board. When you go back and read the, uh, the Gospels, you'll find, here again, Jesus responds in a way that I might not expect. Might expect a little bit of grace, doesn't get it. Might expect a little bit of judgment, but he offers a word of grace. And I probably resonate most with the Samaritan woman who is just enlivened by this. I think it's really cool. It, much in the same way that the Samaritan woman is the one who runs back to her village and says, come meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. Right? And she finds him compelling. None of us would respond that way. It would be, I'm offended. I'm going to go somewhere else <laughs> because somebody called me on my sin and confronted me. Um, but she just loves it. And, and I love how God is gracious in exposing those areas of our life. And Jesus does that over and over again. So as we turn to today's passage, I'm going to give a little bit of background just in case the story is not familiar to you. Um, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, and he's crossed the Jordan, and he's kind of planted himself in the place where John the Baptist was ministering. Uh, early in Jesus' ministry, you're familiar with John the Baptist. He was baptizing there. Jesus has kind of planted himself in this spot. Now, word comes to Jesus that his friend Lazarus is sick. And it makes explicitly clear how much affection Jesus has, not just for Lazarus, but for his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, how many of you know Mary and Martha from the Gospels? Okay, we've got a couple, couple who know, most of you. These are close friends of Jesus, and word comes to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. Now, we know that they were Jesus' close friends, but he stays where he is for two more days before he goes uh, to Judea. And on the way, as they're traveling, now they decide we're going to take our stuff and we're going to go and we're going to check this situation out. It becomes clear that Jesus knows that Lazarus has died, um, but he also knows that he can and he's going to revive Lazarus. So somehow Jesus knows all this. And they continue on. And when they finally arrive, Lazarus has been dead. He's been in the tomb for four days. So they come upon this scene. You've got Lazarus and his two sisters, all close friends of Jesus. Lazarus has died. He's buried. His sisters are grieving. And this is what Jesus enters into. Now, the amount of time that goes by is actually an interesting thing to consider. And as you go back and read the passage, you'll see that John's kind of pointing out how long it takes Jesus to get there. And if you look at a map of you know, the area during Jesus' time, it's not a great distance to travel. So the fact that it takes Jesus two days to get there is one of those sort of you can't get there from here sort of stories. You think, well, it doesn't seem to be that great a distance. So what, what took so long? Um, and John, in his gospel, seems really interested in pursuing that. So they're only about two miles from Jerusalem, and it seems like it's a pretty short distance. So why such a long wait? Uh, at one level, I think it's just a reminder that God doesn't bow to our will. I think Sylvia, as she prayed, kind of alluded to it, that 
as the speed of technology increases, so does the speed of misinformation. Um, but also, impatience sort of goes out the window. The idea that it would take Jesus several days to get somewhere, I don't even like to wait several days for a package to come to me. How many of you have ever, uh, maybe this will just be full disclosure, type an email and send it and then stare at the screen? It's been like 14 seconds. How come nobody's liking my picture? Right? So as these things all increase, impatience is on the rise. So this is actually a very countercultural thing for us. You'd think, well, Jesus could have flown there, I, I guess. Uh, but I think at one level, it's just a reminder that God doesn't bow to our will. He's going to make things right, but he's going to do it on his clock, not on ours. So I think that that's a good reminder to us. At another level, I think that the tension in the story sort of escalates so that when Jesus does finally act, there's going to be no doubt that it was God's power. And I'll give away the end of the story for those of you who don't know. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And it is a praiseworthy thing on many accounts, but it actually in John's gospel is the thing that finally sets the religious leaders off and gets them executed. So uh, that, that's free of charge on that one. But when that happens, you will know for sure that Jesus had acted, that God is at work because he's been in the tomb for four days, right? There's no chance that he was just sleeping or he was just really sick and needed a couple days to recover. They actually refer at one point to the stench of the body, right? That it, it's a very real scenario and the gospels uh, are, are very real. So uh, we're going to pick up the story in verse 20. So if you've got your Bible open, we're in John 11 and we'll be in verse 20. And we see the beginning of two very different responses to Jesus. So Jesus has come now, and it says, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. So for my purposes today, I just quickly want to look at two different responses, okay? There's Martha and there's Mary. They respond to Jesus in very different ways, and Jesus responds to them in very different ways. And to me, that is the apex of responsible speech. Faithful to a moment so that you can speak the truth in that moment. So, I'm calling it faithful presence, and he comes to Martha. Now, Martha gets a bad rap. There are actually whole books about poor Martha because Martha's the one, if you remember, I think it's in Luke's account, where Martha's preparing all the food, and Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet, doing nothing. And Martha basically tells Jesus to, you know, yell at my sister because I'm, I'm preparing all this stuff. Now, in that case, Martha needed to be corrected, absolutely. But I have a, a soft spot in my heart for Martha, only for the fact that if there aren't people like Martha, nobody eats, right? You need the pragmatic, you know, I'm out there making the, f yeah, you got to have those kind of people. So in what we're talking about today, I'm not saying one is better than the other. My only point is that there's two very different responses, and Jesus is able to minister to them both, okay? I'm not saying that Martha is good or bad. I'm not saying that Mary is good or bad, or one is better than the other, or we should be striving to be like one 
over against the other. I'm actually trying to just look at how Jesus responds to them. So, verse 21, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And the words just sort of hang there. So she expresses her grief and her disappointment. We don't need to hide those things from God, right? Martha doesn't run to Jesus and say, how's it going? How's your day? Pretending that nothing is going on. Waiting for Jesus, like the way that we relate to each other. How's it going? Great! Right? That's just the way we respond to each other. It's going good. My week was a mess. <laughs> I'm on four flat tires and I just coasted into my parking space. Uh, you know, there's a tear in my pants and work is miserable. Doing great, right? None of that, right? They don't have to do that. Martha expresses her grief and her disappointment at this profound moment. Now, there's a theological discussion here. Maybe this is what I like about Martha, though this needs to be corrected. She wants to have this kind of theological discussion with Jesus. So if you look at verses 22, uh, verse 21, uh, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But she goes on to say, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, my, uh, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she's having this kind of abstract theology discussion, right? She just lost her brother. She could be permitted, I guess, a little bit of abstraction. And I think we do the same thing here. We think if we can give a, a clever response that maybe that will be the stiff arm to God, like, nope, can't get close to me. See how clever that answer I just gave was? Uh, you, you can't penetrate my heart because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push you off with my, my clever answers. So she's trying to make this an abstract theological discussion. And the point is she's talking about a principle. And what Jesus is going to do and the way that Jesus responds, I'll piggyback on what Joe did a couple weeks ago in one of the I am statements. Um, she's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about himself. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. So he's trying to move her from this, I believe in the resurrection, yeah, you know, we'll be together someday. He's trying to force her to view resurrection as a person. She's very impersonal in the way that she conceives of these things. But Jesus points to himself. Now Mary, or excuse me, Martha, seems to be matter-of-fact kind of person, and he's not critiquing that. He's just trying to steer her toward a more personal conception of faith, faith in a person. So responsible speech means that he puts his finger right on the pulse of Martha and says what she needs to hear. To put it simply, Martha's theology needs a face. It's a principle, it's abstract, it's kind of a mist up there. Jesus brings it into sharp focus by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. Person. And her response shows that she understands. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ the Son of God who comes into the world. Her response shows that she understands what Jesus is doing. She needs to move away from this 
theologically abstract proposition, and she needs to start to focus on the person of Jesus. And you can apply that in any way that you see fit, that we need to shift from this, I believe this list of nine different things about God, versus the mentality that sees that God is perfectly summarized for me in who Jesus is. So that's Martha. Theologically abstract, needs her faith to be made more personal. Now, we come to Mary. And this is just interesting. Um, I might be projecting a whole lot of what I think onto the text. Uh, but, let's see. Let's go to verse um, 28. Now, you remember that when Jesus comes on the scene, Martha goes to see him, and what does Mary do? She stays home, right? She hangs back. And why, if you can put on your imagination for a second, your thinking cap, why would she do that? What's that? Okay. Not worried about the situation like Martha is. That she's so disappointed in the fact that Jesus took so long to get there that that she can't she can't can't look at him. You ever been there? Any other thoughts? Yeah. Right. She's the proverbial homebody. Doesn't want to. Doesn't want to leave. I think, and, and I could be projecting a whole lot onto her personality type. But I think there is that level of disappointment, and here's why. Uh, when she, uh, let's see, verse 28. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying, secretly, the teacher is here and is calling you. Verse 29, what does she do? What does Mary do? She, there's like a Mary-sized hole in the door, right? So she went, uh, she got up quickly and was coming to him. So as soon as, it, it's almost like this, you're deliberately withholding yourself that I can't, I just, I just can't. And as soon as Martha comes and says, the teacher's looking for you, she bolts out the door because it's that tension of, I can't look at him, right? I, I can't because I'm so disappointed. And yet at the same time, her faith is profound and she knows that that's the only place that I'm going to find resolution. So she's stuck. You ever been there? I can't even bring myself to look at this person, but the only chance I have of being made whole is to see him. And you project uh, Mary in the other Gospels, that vision of her at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching, crying her tears. That's all of who she is, and she just needs to be with Jesus, but she's so disappointed that she has to withhold. You see how Martha and Mary are very different sensibilities. Martha just... Matter of fact, she just goes and she has this theological debate with him and has her theology tweaked a little bit. Mary's quite a bit different, right? And one's not good and one's not bad. But what I'm trying to say is that there's this faithful response of Jesus to have the theological discussion on one hand, but also to uh, connect emotionally on the other. Two sisters, same situation, very different response. So Mary comes to Jesus and it says, 
When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same thing that Martha said. But she falls at his feet. She's just a mess, right? And one of the things that interesting is interesting here, at least to me, she expresses the same disappointment, and Jesus says something completely different to her. He doesn't give her the, I am the resurrection and the life. You'll be together again someday. Like in this monotone, canned platitude that we all offer each other at times like this. Jesus' response here is quite different. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, this is very graphic language in the New Testament to describe that Jesus feels this in his gut. He feels this at the most profound level. He sees the situation, and he's not going to have a theological discussion about it. You know why? Because that's not what Mary needs. Is that what Martha needed? Yeah. And is that appropriate in that context? Absolutely. But in this case, things are different. Verse 35, shortest verse in the whole Bible. What is Jesus' response? Jesus wept. Mary needs somebody to feel her pain. She doesn't need ideas. She doesn't need abstractions. She just needs to know that somebody feels her pain. And who feels her pain? God himself. She misses her brother, and her disappointment is the same as Martha's, right? She's disappointed. But again, Jesus says and he does exactly what the person needs. Now, there's a lot that could be said about that, and I've just quickly scanned the passage. I invite you to go back and read it more closely. There's a lot we could say about this, but I just want to say two things. Uh, one, Jesus' ability to engage people in this way flows out of his intimacy with the Father. It's a regular occurrence in the gospel that Jesus retreats from the crowds and he goes and he prays in desolate places, right? Nobody here has the demands on them that Jesus had. None of you are going to step out your front door tomorrow and find that there are a thousand people waiting for what you have to say. I don't think. Now, if you're the genuine article, I do apologize, but I'm guessing that tomorrow when you walk out the door, you're not going to be mobbed. So the fact that Jesus can find time to do that, to commune with his Father, to escape uh, the crowds and to commune, means that we can do it as well. And if you read the Gospels, again, you'll see this a lot, that Jesus retreats and he goes and he has that fellowship with the Father. And his ability to be faithfully present at these moments is a function of the overflow of his intimacy with God. It's a function of the overflow of his intimacy with God. Now, I think that we have access to the same spirit and can do the same thing, that we can minister hope, peace, reconciliation, grace, correction. We can minister those things out of the overflow of our own intimacy with God. And I believe the second thing I'd say is this is the life that we're called to, to follow in the path of Jesus, the path of intimacy that overflows our own lives and spills over and is a blessing to other people in all these diverse ways, right? 
It could be a word of grace. It could be a word of correction. It could be any of those things. And what I love about Jesus' ministry is that it's all those things. It's not just one or the other. There's confrontation. There's grace. There's mercy. There's arguing. There's bickering. You got the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. And nobody seems to stop and say, well, I think it's him, actually, <laughs> talking about Jesus. You ever read the, you know, immaculate, or not immaculate conception, excuse me, the virgin birth? Like, I think he's probably the greatest. I'll take number three, uh, but, but he's the greatest. You have all these things which are so human, right? And the choice is always ours. Jesus always leaves us the choice. In a moment, will you decide to live this kind of life where the overflow of your intimacy with God is a blessing to you, it is a blessing to your spouse, it is a blessing to your family, it is a blessing to your coworkers, it is a blessing to everybody who comes in contact with you. This is the life that we could have. This is the abundant life that Jesus talked about. Will we choose that or will we choose something else? The choice is always ours. I don't believe that God really imposes himself. God never steps in and makes the decision for you. Circumstances might dictate that that has to happen, but I don't think that God over overwhelms our, he ever overwhelms our choice. And just so you can see some of, uh, more of what I'm talking about, you can look at those, uh, those different accounts, and there's more. I just put what would fit on half a sheet of paper, right? I just got to the bottom, and if I had added one more, it would have jumped over to the next margin. So that's why I only put those uh, four different things. You could multiply that, how Jesus responds to people in all those different ways. So what we've done here over these last couple weeks, and what we always do when we're reading scripture and we're, we're studying the Bible and we're talking about this with each other is we're gathering kindling, okay? We are doing the faithful work that we can do in terms of putting these things in place so that God can do something with them. In all of our thinking and all of our reflection, we're just faithfully gathering the materials. God has to ignite it, right? I work with people a lot, and I know that only God can actually change a person. We can sit here and we can talk and that's great, and that can lead to some self-improvement, and I might listen to your advice, and that, that would be awesome, right? God is the one who has to bring about real change. So we're going to actually spend a little bit of time praying, because all of this was just exercise if there's not fruit from it. That we need to put this before the Lord and pray that his spirit would be at work in us. Because we might hear a verse about gossip, and we might be tweaked a little bit, you have 48 hours on that, to be honest with you. Something that you hear and it convicts you, you don't have a whole lot of time to act on that before it's gone. Like, oh yeah, I was so convicted by that. And then by Tuesday afternoon, you've probably already forgotten it. So in that moment, the kindling was gathered, you started to respond, but... Um, but it fell by the way. That's actually one of the ways, just as a word of personal testimony, in sermons that I've listened to, the way that I know that God is operative is not that I feel guilty or that I feel convicted or that I sense a need to change. That happens to me about 14,000 times a day. 
right? The, the need that I say, oh, I wish I hadn't said that, or oh, I wish I hadn't done that, or oh, I wish I could do that differently. If I could stockpile all those up, that doesn't make any difference. The way that I know that God was operative in something is it was compelling, and it brought about real change for me. And I can look at it, and I can see the fruit from it. Not that I felt bad or that I, my ego was bruised a little bit. That happens all the time. But where real godly transformation takes place, that's when you know that God is at work. So by God's grace, we need these kind of compelling examples, uh, like Jesus and even people in our everyday experience who exercise responsible speech. And we need to just beg God to reorient our hearts toward him and toward each other so that we might engage in the rich life of those who speak the truth in love. And out of the overflow of who we are, out of the overflow of our intimacy with God, we might be a blessing to those around us. So I've asked Joe Malin and Dale uh, if they would pray, and then I'll close, and then we'll invite the worship team back up, and we'll continue on. So if, uh, Joe, would you pray, and then, and then Dale?